what he did was he said that he worked with them for their joy. That's what he was after, uh, because the gospel is good news, and um, at the heart of it, uh, it is fair and a right assessment to consider what we do as disciples to work with people for their joy, and it's awesome that even our kids can do that, that they can work with others for their joy by serving them. If you got your Bibles, grab them, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. We are coming to the last chapter of 1 Peter. We've been in this since the spring sometime, and we got about three more sermons left uh, this morning, uh, next week. Uh, I will not be here myself and uh, three of my boys and Josh Jump and another friend and some of his boys are taking a quick trip out to the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation uh, to uh, just drop off some blankets and sleeping bags and coats and stuff like that. They uh, already had a blizzard out there this past, this past week. Um, we think that's going to be gone by this week, um, uh, hopefully, so we can get around good out there. Uh, but then we'll have two more weeks in First Peter after that. Once, once I get back. Um, but First Peter chapter 5, let me read this, jump right in. I'm going to try to be somewhat brief this morning, but you know how that goes. Um, first Peter chapter 5, first five verses. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Let's pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this morning. Um, Lord, we, uh, we love you. And Lord, we're here for you. And Father, I, you know the things that I've been praying for this past week, God, and the things that I want you to do. And Lord, I know you want to do that and so much more. So Father, would you, would you please just do them this morning? I can't. We can't. But you can. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible, and we thank you uh, that that's the type of God you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So, a couple of things here. I want to, before I, we get into the text, I'm going to approach this a little bit differently this morning. I want to give you kind of what my aims or hopes are this morning, and these are just things that I believe arise from the text. I'm not just making them up or inserting them on the text, but there are things also that I just... I just felt really strongly this past week as I was studying this and, and praying through it uh, that the Lord would just, uh, that he just wanted to do these things in us as we, as we look at this this morning. The first one is that I hope that as we walk through this passage that in each one of us the Holy Spirit would put just a deep desire and a hunger for all that the church can be. Most of us here, I think, gain our expectations about what church is and what it should be just simply by what we've experienced. And for most of us, that's usually a problem. Because I bet as we went around, most of us would have testimonies about how we've experienced some not-so-good stuff in our church life growing up. 
and uh, maybe there's, it's, um, you know, it's usually a mixed bag. There's some good, there's some bad. But what happens is that when we have a picture or a vision of all that a local church should be based solely on our experience and not on the Word of God, is we begin to lower the expectations. I heard a statistic just this past week. They've been tracking this for several years now, and I've shared it with you before, but they just did like this most recent one um, uh, in 2019. And, and the statistic is that back in 2001, the average church attender, now this is important, a church attender is a person who says, I'm all in, I love Jesus, I go to church, I'm involved in my church, okay? The average church attender in America, church attender in America attended church 3.4 times a month. And the way they get that is, you know, they take how many times they go over the whole year and they average it, they divide it by how many Sundays or whatever. And it came out to 3.4. So people were there more Sundays throughout a month than they're not. Today, the average church attender, again, not just person in the world, not person who's, you know, just kind of comes on Easter and Sunday, but like the person that says, I'm all in, I love Jesus, I love my local church. They attend church on Sunday mornings 1.6 times a month. 1.6. And now here you're like, what? You know, I'm not just here to rant against church attendance or whatever, but, but as I think about that, um, I think we're slightly better than that, but I don't think we're a whole lot better, if I'm being honest. And, and, and by better, I just mean like that, that, that number pretty much holds true for the most part. Um, and as I think about that, uh, I think that one of the reasons that is, one of the reasons we don't think that getting together as a church is that big of a deal is just because we have such low expectations. Like we have not got our expectations for what the local church can be from the Word of God. We've gotten it simply from our experience. And our experience many times typically is, well, yeah, you know, you just show up on Sunday mornings and this is what you do. And, you know, during the week, eh, maybe. But, you know, who really wants to? What's, what's the point? Man, and I pray that this week and in the weeks to come, because this whole chapter, I, I wanted to take the whole thing because it all goes together and it, it paints a vision of, of somewhat of what a local church can be and the type of culture that can exist there. Um, but I just, I wanted to take my time and not, and not rush through it as well. But I pray that as we go through this, that God would put in our hearts a deep love for the local church. Secondly, the second thing that I hope that the Holy Spirit does as we go through this last chapter is that if you are suffering or if you're facing difficulty, or when you do, if you're not currently, but when you do, I pray that you would lean into biblical community and not away from it. You know, as we've been going through this letter, I said this last week, um, but it's been the theme throughout the letter is that of suffering, of difficulty. And last week I hammered away on the fact that it's, it's, it's coming. Guys, we're not immune to it. It's going to come. And when it comes, I see this happen so many times, and this is, this is my default, too, just in my flesh. It's natural for all of us. But when difficulty comes, many times we want to withdraw. We want to step back. We want to be in our pain just kind of by ourselves. And that's not what the Bible calls us to. And it calls us to it not just to show that we're so tough and we're going to still go to church and we're going to do our Christian duty even though we're going through difficulty. It wants us to lean into community because in community is where there is an extra measure of grace that God intends to lavish on his people. That's where if you notice the last line of, the, of verse 5 there, that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That grace is something that should mark our culture. And I pray that as, again, as we study this last chapter, that, 
that if you're going through difficulty or when you do, that you would lean into community. And many times that means getting involved in community so that you have a community to lean into and not, and not away from. And lastly, <coughs> um, I want to say a word to the men this morning. And <coughs> I have a, a hope and a prayer that God would do something special in the men among us. And by men, I want to be clear here, I'm talking about young men, 13, 14 years old, all the way up to however old we got, okay? But I want to take a minute, guys, and, and I just want to remind us of the high calling and privilege that God puts forward in His Word, as He does in this passage this morning. The high calling and privilege to be a leader and a shepherd in a local church. Now hear me, when I say leader and shepherd, I'm not, we, we, he is talking a lot of this morning about the office of elder, um, that there are certain men within every congregation, and you know, I'll talk a little bit about this, but every local church in the New Testament had a plurality of elders, a group of elders that led, a group of shepherds that led that church. But I'm not just talking about holding that office. I don't think that the end-all, be-all of maturity or the end of the Christian life is for every man to serve the office of elder, but I do believe it is for every man to serve in their local church in a shepherd-like way, in a way that is exemplary and that um, is helpful, and that we be strong and courageous. And again, I'm Guys, we, we, chase, we, we chase so much stuff, and, and so many of you, are like, you're busy doing so much stuff, and please listen to me this morning. Okay, I'm trying. I want to be as clear as I can, and hopefully you, you give me a little bit of grace, though, because I mean this in the absolute best way, is that so many of you are busy doing stuff, and I want to tell you something. That's right, and it's good, because God has built you to build. He's made you to build stuff. He's made you to be busy. And so, man, I, I, do, I pray that God, he, he, that he blesses your businesses and that he, he blesses, you know, the stuff that you're building and your projects and your side hustles and, you know, whatever you're trying to do, like, do it with all your might. That's great. You were made to be productive. God made you that way, okay? But, but here's what I know. Here's what I know, and I know that you know this too. Is, is that in the end, no, no, much, no, no matter how much money you make, it's not going to satisfy. It's not going to last forever. No matter what you build, it will someday crumble. It's not going to last forever. Um, and, and guys, what we see over and over again in the Word is that, again, we build things because God builds things, but God is building something, and it is going to last forever, and what he's building is his church. That's what the God of the universe is at work right now today. He, Jesus Christ Almighty sits at the right hand of God, resurrected, having conquered Satan's sin and death. He sits, and what is he doing? He is building his church, and he gave us this promise in Matthew chapter 16. He said, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. 
And that promise that he gives in Matthew chapter 16 is to the universal church. It is the church throughout all time and throughout all places in the last 2,000 years since he went back up to heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit. But the universal church that he is building year after year, decade after decade, century after century, it has gone forward. It has been fleshed out in local congregations just like ours full of real people and full of real, ordinary, imperfect men who are called to lead that church. And I pray, Holy Spirit, do it right now even. I pray that God would take this word, and not just this morning, but every morning, but that you guys would feel from him, not from me, but from him, that you would hear that call to serve in the local church and to be men that, yes, are imperfect, man. We're so imperfect. And so many times that's why we shrink back from it because we know that we're not perfect. And man, oh, well, I could never lead. Man, everybody's always been imperfect. Peter writing this letter, we're going to talk about this, like he was imperfect. But that doesn't mean that you don't lead. You start by leading your wife. You start by leading your kids. If you're not married, you start by leading yourself. And leading whoever is around you. But that we answer, we answer that call. Guys, here's what's happened is that you're going to fight battles. You're going to build stuff because you were made to fight battles. You, you were made to build. And the enemy knows that he can't stop us from doing that. So what he does is he distracts us by fighting battles and building things that don't matter. He keeps us distracted by fighting battles and building things that in the end don't matter for eternity. And again, I'm not saying that everybody has to be in full-time vocational ministry. And like, that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that if you know Jesus, he saved you to send you. That you could lead in whatever context that he's, that he's called you in. You know, guys, how, when you think about being strong in the context of some sort of sport, you know, whether it's basketball or football or baseball or soccer or, what, or, or whatever it is. Um, you know, some guys are just more talented and athletically, you know, gifted than others. But for anybody who's ever become great at a sport of any sort, you almost always hear the story that they started playing from a very young age. That, you know, Mom or dad, they put, the, they put the ball glove in the crib with him. How many of you guys have seen baby pictures like that before? You know, you got the little baby, he's got his ball glove, you know, it's as big as he is. You know, or they put the basketball, you know, in their room. Just wanted, just wanted to get it in their hand. The way you, that you become strong in any sort of sport is by starting to play from, from a young age. Um, and guys, the reason that we tend to not be strong uh, in the kingdom of God and for making an impact against the kingdom of darkness is that we just, we, we never pick up the ball. Because hear me this morning, I'm not saying that like, man, if you didn't grow up in church and maybe, you know, some of you are in your 40s or 50s or, or 60s and you just came to know Jesus, man, that, that's okay, that's, that's totally fine. That's God's sovereignty at work in your life and he saves you when he saves you, he calls you to himself when he decides to call you to himself. But when he does, pick up the ball. 
get in the game. Know that it is his will, according to his word, that you be involved in that you aspire to lead in the church that he purchased with his own blood. And the hope this morning, again, is not, is not in us and what we can do. It's always Christ in us. Um, but like in Psalm 144 and in Psalm 18, David says these things. He said, blessed be the Lord, my rock. And listen, listen to what he does. Who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Again, in Psalm 18, he trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. How did David become strong? He picked up the bow and the Lord trained his hands. And my prayer, one of my prayers is that God would take this word week in and week out. And, and especially, I just, and, I, and again, I, I could be off on this, but I, I'm just going to share my heart with you this morning. I just feel like um, we're just in a season where the Lord wants to do this. And, and I don't think I've made that up as I've sought him about it, but I totally see why it would be a season where he wants to do this. Because guys, we will not go forward as a church being effective in the mission that God has given us, which is to make disciples of all nations. It's the same mission that he's given everybody. If you do not step up and lead, it won't happen. It will not happen. And so I pray that, I pray that God would do that in us. Amen? You with me? Still awake? Okay. Let's get to first, let's get to first Peter. And here's what I'm going to do, okay? I don't really have any points. I'm just going to read a little bit, chat a little bit, read a little bit, chat a little bit, read a little bit, chat a little bit, and we'll get through it eventually, okay? Verse 1. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. Now remember, what was he talking about last week? So you could also translate that. It could also be the word therefore, Okay? Well, what he was talking about last week was in a very succinct way, just like what he'd been talking about throughout the whole book, is suffering, difficulty. People are in pain. Again, guys, there's, there's pain in the world. There's difficulty. There's suffering. So, therefore, what? What does he do? He says, I exhort, I encourage, I come alongside, and I plead with. That's what that means. The elders among you, the elders among you, we, are, uh, we take the stance in terms of men and women in the church, what you would call complementarian relationships, okay? Complementarian relationships simply means this, is that men and women are completely equal under God. We are both equally sons and daughters, children. Um, men are not in any way better, but it is all part of God's design uh, for the church. It has nothing to do with um, being smarter than, than women or just being more skilled or more talented. That has nothing to do with it. It's simply that this is the way that God has designed it. And complementarian relationships is that we believe that women can serve in absolutely every way inside the local church. They can teach, they, they, can, they, can, teach, they, can, even, they can even preach or um, We've had that happen before, and we're also, you know, we're going to have Julie Slattery here in a couple months for that conference. She's also going to be sharing on a Sunday morning. They can do everything except hold the office of elder. The office of elder in the local, in the local church is to be held by men. And it's that way not because, again, men are better in any way or that we're somehow holier or, or uh, better than women or um, closer to God. It's because that's simply the way that God has designed it. Same way as guys in your homes, 
you're equal with your wife, you discuss things with your wife, you, you talk with your wife, you, you care about your wife's opinion and the decisions that she wants to make, and you even exist to help, to help serve that and to get that there and to empower them to be all that they can be. But in the end, God holds you responsible to lead your family. And likewise, God holds men who are holding the office of elder in the local church responsible to lead a congregation into the things that he's calling them to do. And so he says here, because people are suffering, because people are hurting, and because there's a mission to advance, he says, so therefore I exhort the elders among you. And then he says, as a fellow elder. So Peter, I, and again, I want you to hear this and understand the context because I want you to feel the weight of what he's saying. He's not, he's not speaking to these elders. He's not speaking to these men to lead as somebody who's just out of the game. He's down in the trenches. He's not saying, elders, you do this while I sit back and do nothing. He says, I'm a fellow elder. It's interesting that at the time that, that Peter wrote this, almost all scholars agree that it was probably somewhere in the mid-AD 60s, okay? So somewhere around AD 30 to 33 is when Jesus ascended back up into heaven and started his church, poured out his spirit on the day of Pentecost. For 30 years, for 30 years, Peter's been serving in the local church. And he's writing this here as a fellow elder to other elders to other men saying man I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed so he's again he hasn't given the the, the command yet he hasn't given the exhortation yet but he's 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 puffing all this up with weight saying I'm a fellow elder I also witness the sufferings of Christ and I'm also going to be a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And we will too someday. We will stand before Jesus. So what is the command that he gives in verse 2? Shepherd. It's a verb. It's an action word. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Okay? This word shepherd, again, and, and just hopefully just add a little bit more weight to what Peter's saying. This word shepherd is the same word that is translated tend in the English um, back in John 21. I don't know if you guys remember what happened back in John 21. But John 21 is post-resurrection after Jesus had died and resurrected. But in between there, you guys know the story, is that Peter denied Jesus and he denied him three times. And he denied him because he was afraid. It's one thing to be afraid, guys. Like if there's like a big burly dude, you know, like six foot seven and bulked up, you know, that's like, do you know Jesus? But Peter fled from a little girl. Huh? <laughs> like not his best day. But this little servant girl. So you're one of his disciples. I don't know what you're talking about. No, I'm pretty sure you're one of his disciples. I don't, I don't know. I know. I'm, I'm not. She says the third time, no, surely you're one of his. I don't know him. <laughs> And denies Jesus three times. But after that denial, post-resurrection in John 21, Jesus um, cooks breakfast for the disciples. They're out fishing. They went back to doing what they did before because they're like, man, we all fled. Peter's like, we deny. I'm going back to fishing, you know. Messed up at this discipleship ministry thing. But Jesus is on, shore, on the shore while they're out fishing, cooks some breakfast, tells them to come in. They come in. As they're sitting around the fire, he looks at Peter. He says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you, you know that I love you. Ask him that three times. And the second time, and well, and every, every time, 
Jesus asks him if he loves him. The first, two, the first time, the last time, he says, then feed my sheep. But the second time he asks him that, he says, Peter, tend my sheep. The same word here in verse 2 that's translated shepherd, this verb. The idea is that you feed and that you lead. That's what it means. You feed with the word of God and you lead by your example, by seeking to be an example. And, and again, I say that because, I don't know, as I think about that context of who's writing this letter, it just brings a lot of weight to it for me. That to hear Peter still now, 30 years later, even though it had been hard, and listen, just like I said earlier, guys, even though he had been very, very, very imperfect. And not just then, but even later on in his ministry, Paul has to rebuke him because, again, fear of man sets in. And you can read about that in Galatians. I won't go into the whole thing. But he did it imperfectly, but he didn't stop. And so, guys, in love this morning, I tell you, don't tell me that it's because you don't have everything together in your life and that's why you can't lead. That's why you can't serve. Neither did Peter. It's no excuse. Leading, um, and I have found this to be true, <laughs> it's simply living your life um, in the Christian sense for the glory of God in front of people. It's just doing it in front of people. Um, and you are going to mess up. You know, if you're afraid whether or not you're going to mess up, let me just uh, burst that bubble and answer the like, you're going to mess up. <laughs> you're going to mess up. Absolutely. And by mess up, I mean sin. Do things that you shouldn't. Say things that you shouldn't. It's still not an excuse. Called to lead. And he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now he's going to flesh out here what it means to shepherd. Again, it all goes back to that verb, shepherd. And he's going to do it with three statements that not, I call them not but statements, okay? So not, he says, not under compulsion, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but as examples, okay? And the reason he does this thing, the not but states the negative and then the positive is just so that we see it more clearly. Each one kind of defines the next one. So he says, do it willingly, Okay? But not just willing, it's, 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 it's in contrast to not under compulsion. In other words, what type, how, how do you shepherd well? Here's how, guys. Here's how you lead well. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Again, I, I know that it might sound like I'm trying to like twist your arm this morning or like force you into something that maybe you don't feel called to do. Again, listen to me. I, I don't want you to do it just because I tell you that you do it. I, again, remember I said at the beginning, what I'm praying this morning is that you would hear God tell you to do it. That you would tell, hear God tell you to stand up and lead wherever you're at and to live a godly life and to not give excuses because he's your shepherd He's the one that you're going to stand before. Not because you have to, but because you want to. You, if, if you're going to be a good shepherd, you've got to do it willingly because he's called you to. Not because, and, and I don't know, you know, I've heard ex, kind of sliding scale of severity on how bad this can get sometimes, but I've literally heard of guys that like sometimes, uh, it's usually in the context of getting like chosen by lot or something to lead the church. And they like cry because they so don't want to do it. Or sometimes you even have guys that like just randomly like get nominated or get, or get elected to be an elder or to lead in, in some position. And they're like, 
I got elected for this to serve on this board or to, you know, whether it's an elder board or whatever else. So I guess I guess I got to do it. That's not what it's calling for here. It's for people that want to lead, want to do it. Um, Not by compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but but eagerly. And again, he's just taking these. He's just driving them deeper here Um, because willingly eagerly it's literally the idea the root word is the idea of heat or passion that it's something that's that's a fire you know jeremiah said when the ministry that god had given him to be a prophet to the nation jeremiah would continually use this this metaphor that he said the message of god was like a fire pent up in his bones paul said something similar when he said woe to me if i don't preach the gospel like i i you you have to feel compelled compelled to do it. And again, Lord Jesus, I pray that you do it in the hearts of each one of us. Eagerly, and then finally, not domineering, but as an example. And this is the one again. So you've got willingly, eagerly, and then I would say visibly or tangibly. That one is an example. It's like, again, you, you've got to lead in front of people. Guys, you, you cannot be afraid to allow people into your life so that they can see your life. And when you're imperfect, when you have things that aren't fully right, here's what you need to do. You, you need to not make an excuse for it. We don't make excuses for it. But at the same time, we don't try to hide it. What do we do? We, try to, we just be honest about it. That's it. You openly confess, say, this is an area where I'm not fully yet like Jesus, but I want to be like Jesus. And my hope is that he's not done working on me. <laughs> Remember that old song? Do you guys ever sing that song in kids' church growing up? He's still working on me to make me what? I, anybody? I feel very alone right now. Okay, a few, few nods. Okay. It always happens when I break out in song. Everybody's like, oh my gosh, he's not doing that again. I should just, I should just stop, I know. but um, He's still working on us, guys. And it's okay. And he will be. Until, until he comes back. But we need to lead willingly, eagerly, and tangibly or visibly in front of people. And by the way, guys, here's why this is so important. And, and again, this isn't, I know I'm hammering away at the guys here this morning, but for men and women, okay, for all of us. If we're going to be effective as a church in making disciples, I was talking with Paul and Miriam about this this morning um, in prayer time before the service, is that by far and away, the piece of the discipleship process that is most missing in our culture as a whole is relationship, Okay? It is absolutely overwhelming to me that you can walk into a gospel bookstore or a Lifeway Christian Resources bookstore or whatever, and man, it's just Bible study after Bible study after Bible study and workbook after workbook after work, workbook and curriculum after curriculum after curriculum. We, like, no group of people, no culture in the history of the world has had the biblical resources that we have. And listen, the, yeah, there's some bad ones, but there's a ton of good ones. There's so much good stuff, yet for the most part, we are not creating in the church in America wholehearted, passionate, lay down your life, die with Jesus, disciples of Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because what our discipleship process lacks is relationship. For the most part, what our discipleship process involves is this type of setting, and I'm not against this type of setting. 
I mean, I, Paul, Paul tells Timothy in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he goes, you know, I give you this charge in, in, before Christ Jesus and the living God and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Here's what he says, preach the word. And that word for preach there is not like sit down and discuss and say, oh, hey, do you, do you think this is okay? Or do you, do you agree with this? This is kind of what I believe. It's let it fly in the name of Jesus. That's what he tells him to do. So I totally believe in this, but the discipleship process has got to involve more than this. Discipleship is about truth coming through loving relationship. Let me say that again. If you're a note taker, write that down, okay? Discipleship is about truth coming through loving relationship. Guys, men and women, people have to see your life. In the gospel, it can come being proclaimed, but it has to come through relationship. Um, And it takes time to build that relationship. And that's where the work is. That's where the work is. Relationships can be exhausting, can they not? Yeah? (laughs) They can be. That's the work. Put our hand to the plow. That's what we don't, we don't give up on. We don't look back. We build those relationships speaking the truth in love. So that's kind of his description of, of how we do this. But then verse 4, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, again, he moves here to, again to motivation. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And again, you've got, you've got these three groups of people in the, in the text. You've got the shepherds. The little, little shepherds, lowercase s, shepherds, and plural. You've got the sheep, verse 2, verse 3, referred to as the flock. But then you've got the shepherd, capital S, shepherd, and singular, not plural, Jesus. And Jesus alone, the good shepherd, the one and only. And uh, this is why... Aspiring to be a leader in the church is daunting. I'm not saying that it's not to lead in any way, shape, or form. Uh, It doesn't just have to be the office of elder, but in whatever way you're leading. Why? Because we're going to give an account to the chief shepherd. And he is going to appear. And we're going to stand before him. And this is always the primary motivation that is given in Scripture over and over and over again is that when we stand before him, that we would want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That we would know and be able to stand with integrity. Listen, I'm not talking about perfection, but still being able to say with sincerity, just like Paul did, I ran my race, Jesus. And you know, Jesus, you know how often I stumbled. And you know how often I fell. But I tried to run for you. I want us, I want us to be able to say that. In verse 5, he says, likewise, and he shifts now, and now he's talking to the flock, he's talking to the sheep. He says, likewise, you who are younger. And he doesn't say young, younger men, but yet, in the context of talking about elders, most commentary, t- commentaries that I read kind of said that the, the sense here is that he's probably talking to young men. But young everybody, people that aren't elders, Likewise, you who are younger, what's he say? Be subject to the elders. And then he says this, okay? This is very important. 
because he's going to wrap it up. And this is the theme really of this entire chapter. And we're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come. He says, clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves, all of you with what? Humility, humility. And see, even though this is the first time in the, in the passage that he's mentioned the word humility, this is what he's been talking about the whole time. That is, he's describing elders, guys, that if we're going to lead, if we're going to be good shepherds in our families, in our communities, and ultimately in the local church, guys, it can't be about us. And that's what humility is. Humility is, you know, Philippians chapter 2 where, it, you know, Jesus was the picture of humility. It says, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Let me say that again. Jesus, who being in very nature God, meaning he was God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He, in other words, he was God, but he didn't live as God when he was here on this earth. How did he live? He lived as a servant. He lived for others. And, and the way that, again, we clothe ourselves with humility is not just by trying to be humble. Have you ever thought about this? It's important. I'm not trying to be deep and confusing just for the sake of sounding confusing, but you've got to think about this. If you try to be humble and you have a picture in your mind of what it might look like to be humble, and you pursue that, and then you arrive and you say, I'm humble now. What are you actually? You're proud. <laughs> you become proud about your humility, right? And so humility is unlike any other virtue. And humility is something that has to happen along the lines of like what C.S. Lewis said. He said, humility is not thinking less of self, it's thinking of self less. But man, that's hard to do, isn't it? Like, how do, we, how do we do that? We are inundated in a culture that is all about us and that is constantly telling you that you are the center of the universe. You know that every advertisement is built around that in some way, right? Every advertisement comes down to this, to this idea, even though they don't say this. Here's what all advertising comes down to. You deserve this. You deserve that Big Mac. Mm. Go get it. You deserve that new four-wheeler. You deserve that new tour. You deserve that bigger house. You're worth it. But humility isn't about self. It's about others. So how do we get there? Here's what I would propose, and it's not that deep. It's pretty simple. And this is what all of discipleship drives us towards. The way you get humility is not by seeking to be the most humble person in the world. It's simply by seeking to follow Jesus. Humility is a byproduct of looking at his life and being absolutely amazed by it. That the eternal God of all the universe would come down and lay down his life, not just for a few people who were his best buddies, or that who treated him well in return. But he came and he poured out his life for people that hated him. And he did this just simply in obedience to his father. 
And so guys, in the end, you know, talking about being a leader and hoping that you, you love the local church. And again, like I said at the beginning, I hope that, you know, if you're suffer, going through suffering or a time of difficulty, that you lean into community and not away from com- community. And I hope that you can find here humility. Guys, do you want people to be able to find humility here among us? Yes? You with me? Yeah? Here's the only way that's going to happen is if we are so fixated on Jesus and so amazed by him and him alone that we just, by his grace, stop thinking about ourselves. That's what I want. That's what I want for us. I believe that's what, it's what Peter wants for us. And here's what's awesome, is that there's a promise that comes with this. And it's a double-edged promise, both ways, <laughs> if we do it or we don't do it. But if we fix all of our hopes on Jesus, here's what he says. He quotes here from the Old Testament. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives, but he gives grace to the humble. See, what does the world need? What do those that are suffering, going through difficulty, what do they need? They need grace. How are they going to find it if they find a community of people that are humble, but they're humble not because they're trying to be humble, but they're humble because they just can't stop talking about Jesus. And they're so in awe of him. You with me? Worship team, you can come up and we're going to close. Jesus Christ um, conquered everything, everything, by laying down his life by not living for himself, but by living for the will of the Father and laying down his life for others. Um, And it looked like foolishness for a time, but in the end, it it ended in victory. And and guys, I want to come back and talk to you again here as we close, just that I understand that there's so many things that you could pursue. And again, and hear me, I don't think that you have to stop pursuing all those things. Um, but I, I'm not going to lie to you either. Is it part of serving Jesus, and, and as Jesus said, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then trusting that all these things will be added unto you? There's no way to do that unless you say no to some things. And unless you you say no to this and I'm, I'm going here I'm going all in I'm going all in after Jesus um, and at the time at the time that you do that uh, just know this people will think that you're foolish people will think that it's not it's not worth it but I'm just saying no it is it is worth it I mean you know a couple weeks ago the last E2 course meeting that we had we met down at the old hub in Sugar Creek, and one of the first things we did, we always start off with prayer, and everybody prays. That's part of the course. It's like, you don't got to pray long, but everybody's going to pray, at least the sentence. But this time, instead of just going around and doing that, um, we took a quick field trip, a quick walk uh, up the road to the cemetery, to the, the graveyard, just up the road there on 93. And I had everybody just kind of walk around for a while, and I don't know if you guys have ever done this. Most of you probably just think it's weird, but I'm telling you, don't knock it till you try it, okay? But we just walked around, and we just looked at tombstones. Fun, right? 
But as we did that, I told her, but I just want you to pray. I just want you to walk around. I just want you to look. I just want you, I just want you to pray. And there's something about that exercise that's just so sobering and kind of brings everything back into focus. Okay, and I encourage you to do it. But one of the things that really hit me, and I honestly had not thought about this until we got back to the hub then. We walked back down the hill and I was just asking everybody about, you know, what, what type of thoughts they had and if the Lord spoke to them in any ways as we were, as we were walking around doing that and praying. But the thing that hit me once we got back down there is, yes, just about the sobriety of life and like we're all going, that's where we're all going is to that place. But it also just reminded me of the good news that we believe in. Because again, and I'm going to give you a brief little eschatology here as we close. Um, and I don't have time to unpack this and explain to you why I think I'm right. And this is how it's going to be. But here's what I believe is going to happen. And all Christians throughout history, I believe something close, uh, maybe a slight variation of this will happen. But here's what I believe is going to happen. Is that one day, even if all of us die and we end up in whatever graveyard around, is that one day Jesus is going to come back. And what's going to happen is he's going to come back visibly. And every eye will see him. And he's going to light up the sky as far as the east is from the west. It's going to be like lightning that just doesn't stop. And what's going to happen is he's going to come back down and he's going to wait for just a second. And the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And those tombstones that we walked around at the, you know, the Shanesville Cemetery there, every single one of those, for every person that knows Jesus, those tombstones, no matter how big, no matter what they're made out of, they're going to be broken open. And there's going to be these spirits that have died and have been with God in heaven forever but do not yet have their resurrected bodies. When he comes back, these new bodies are going to come up out of the ground. What is sown perishable is going to be raised imperishable. And they're going to meet our spirits with him in the air. And then we all with new bodies are going to immediately follow this Jesus riding on a white horse with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's real. It's in Revelation. I'm telling you. It's awesome. And we are going to follow him back and he is going to trample his enemies. And all death, suffering, pain, evil, abuse of any kind, it is going to be annihilated forever. He is the victor. And on that day when he comes back blazing in all of his glory and we get his new bodies, guys, listen to me, that's the day that it's going to be worth it. It's not going to be worth it now. It's going to be a sacrifice now. You're going to have to give up other things now. But I'm telling you, there's going to be a day when it's worth it. And for 2,000 years, it is living for that day that has motivated men to take up their cross and to follow him and to shepherd in the local church. Do you understand? And, and if anything else, like, is your motivation? You, sorry. I mean, yeah, there's some benefits for sure, but like, it's difficult. But guys, let's do it. Amen? Here's what I want to do. Um, this is going to be, this, this might be awkward, but I've told you before, like, if you're going to follow Jesus and you're not okay with awkward, you're going to have a hard time following Jesus, Okay? But we're going to close and we're going to do communion like we usually do. 
But when I do that in just a second, here's what I want. And listen, I'm not trying to be forceful. I, I don't, I'm, I'm asking you to be honest. If you're feeling the Holy Spirit calling you to do this this morning. If not, then I just want to set you free from that. Don't feel any obligation. But I'm going to get up and I'm going to walk to the back. We don't have a lot. Of, we do, You know, altar calls here, it's, it's kind of not a lot of room up here. But we have more room back in that corner. And after, when we begin communion, I'm going to go back there. And I want to give a specific invitation this morning to men. Listen to me. Men, if you're 13, 14 years old, or if you're 70 years old, and anywhere in between. But if you want to give your life to serve in this local church where God has you right now in a greater way than what you have been doing, then I want you to come back there. And I want to pray for you. And I want to ask that God would show us what he wants us to do next. You understand? Okay, let's do that. You guys stand with me. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread.